0: This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, holy cow, am I excited about this one. It's been a long time coming. We have with us the founder of the Conscious Conservative Movement, an entrepreneur, public intellectual, faith leader, someone whose dedication to working on behalf of her community in this country has been deeply inspiring to me. Uh, Felicia Killings is with us today, and we're going to talk about what it takes to build a movement. But first, let me set this up. So we're at that point of the season of this podcast where we're finishing up the book of Exodus, and we're about to start talking about Leviticus. Now, I know what you're thinking. Finally, we're about to see some action in the Bible. Uh, No, but in all seriousness, Leviticus is a really uh, dense and challenging work. And even though it's responsible for some of the most important ideas in history, I mean, love thy neighbor as thyself, for instance, and specifically in American history, the line on the Liberty Bell proclaim liberty throughout the land. It's a quote from Leviticus. The fact remains that it's a tough book. And that's because famously so much of it is dedicated to describing the temple and everything that went on there. But here's the thing the Bible clearly thinks it's super important. I mean, the majority of the Pentateuch is actually spent talking about it or about topics related to it, which is pretty amazing when you think about it because, I mean, why? Is the Bible, like, that desperate to scare away readers? Like, why spend so much time talking about the temple? And the answer, I think, is that it's necessary to talk about it as a response to the major biblical event that immediately precedes it. And that's the revelation at Mount Sinai, the appearance of the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. I mean, think about it. The revelation at Sinai was everything the temple is not. It's exciting. It's got thunder and lightning, inspiring. It's a moment of spiritual ecstasy. I mean, come on, it's the stuff great movies are made of. I mean, like Charleston Hesson's not signing up to be in a film about purity and sacrifice. But it's for that reason that the temple, that the book of Leviticus is so crucial. The revelation at Sinai was impressive, but it was a flash in the pan. It was an awe-inspiring experience, but it was also over in a moment. God's revelation to the Israelites was immensely important, don't get me wrong, but it also wasn't sustainable because what do you do when the inspiration fades, when the ecstasy dissipates, when the spirit and the passion subside? And that's where the book of Leviticus comes in. Its answer to that question is build a temple, build something lasting, right? It may not be flashy, doesn't have thunder and lightning pyrotechnics, but you know what it does have? It has people coming there every single day. And putting in the hard, sometimes boring, but always consistent work of bringing yourself closer to God. And it's that kind of consistent work that, over time, builds something lasting and beautiful. So ultimately, Revelation is inspiring, but a temple is lasting. Revelation creates a crowd, but a temple takes that crowd and turns it into a society. And it's true that all great missions start with Revelation. But if you want to transform that into a sustainable movement... You need to actually put in the hard, consistent work of building something. And that's not just true in the life of the mind or the world of the spirit. It's also deeply true in social and political life as well. So how does this shake out practically? How can we as a nation, as members of a community rooted in history or shared values or rooted in a faith tradition, how do we build a sustainable, inspiring future? So to unpack all of this, I brought on someone who's doing this in cities and communities across the country, the highest level with the highest degree of sophistication. She's the founder of the Conscious Conservative Movement. She's a writer, teacher, philanthropist, entrepreneur, and builder. She's Felicia Killings. Felicia, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. That introduction was fire. I loved it. Yes! Yes.
1: I love it. So, Felicia, I've been so excited about this for a while now, because when I first discovered you on Twitter, I remember feeling like I'd stumbled onto something Totally new, just this really vibrant, confident community I'd never imagined before. So can you tell us about conscious black conservatives? Like, I had not heard that term until I found you. Who are you? What do you stand for?
2: Well, yes. Um, again, thank you so much for having me on your show today. Uh, to answer your question, the conscious black conservative movement is actually it was my response to a lot of the negativity that I saw happening on the right or on the conservative side in terms of how um, this base, the political base, reflected on Black Americans or how they were actually conveying a very dark, negative, degrading message towards Black voters. And just to give some background for your audience, I have been raised in a conservative home my entire life. So all I know is conservatism. Uh, Growing up, my dad has been the number one teacher in my life. And so As long as I can remember, he's always voted Republican. Now, that's not to say he voted for every Republican, because if there was someone who didn't uh, um, espouse his values, he would just do a write in or what have you. So it was more so along the lines of adhering to conservative values and determining which political party would support policies that would support our desire for wealth, protecting of our families, dot, dot, dot. And so that is all I've always known. But growing up in my home, my father never told us to be colorblind. He never told us to ignore being black or racism is not a big deal in this in this country. He never gave me these kind of talking points that you often hear on the conservative right. And so when I started to in 2016, as I began to become more involved uh, publicly with politics, I recognized that there is this massive mainstream push to basically make black conservatives ignore being black. Or, you know, why does everything have to be black? Why does it have to be black history? Why does it have to be? And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, we have a very distinct culture, a very distinct history in this country. Why would you think that we are all exactly the same? And so the term black conservative just started to get a very it, it was just very distasteful for me after a while. And so I added the adjective conscious to black conservative because I wanted folks to understand that consciousness means we are aware. That's all it is. It's just an awareness of who we are, where we've come from, understanding our spiritual background and our spiritual foundation. And I'm like, this is who we are. The majority of Black Americans would probably, if every single one of them heard about the conscious Black conservative movement, the majority would say, yeah, that's who I am. Because you cannot be unconscious of what's taking place in our country, past and present. And so that's how the name emerged, Conscious Black Conservative. And as I began to just share more about my ideas, the philosophy, the backing behind it, it turned into this movement, this massive movement. I took it to Twitter. And next thing you know, it is just...
1: (laughs) It's like everywhere.
2: (laughs) So I'm like, this is um, an inspiration that I received from the Holy Spirit. Everything that I do, I always want to make sure I give him credit for these creative ideas And the whole purpose is just really to help particularly Black Americans, because we're dealing with a lot of progressivism, a lot of destruction in our predominantly Black communities nationwide, is to show how we can apply spiritual laws and principles to help us build social, political, and economic empires for the next 100 plus years. So that's how it emerged. And it, like I said, it continues to grow. We're very excited about the outreach that we're now doing in this next year, going to these various cities to talk to folks about the philosophy. And then, um, you know, you just never know where it's going to take you after that.
1: I mean, there's so much... I want to unpack from that answer it's such a rich text and I I I have like 17 different questions I want to ask you at once. There's <laughs> there's this very ancient Jewish tradition in biblical commentary that picks up on the fact that in Exodus and Deuteronomy the Hebrew words uh, in the commandment about the Sabbath are different. So which one, it must've been one or the other. So there's this old tradition that that when God spoke the 10 commandments, he actually spoke both versions at once. So I wanna speak like 17 different questions to you at once. <laughs> uh, um, okay, so let's start here. First of all, one thing that I think is so intriguing and extraordinary about what you do, is you really put your faith at the center of it. And as somebody who, you know, I, I say on this podcast all the time, I'm like the religious nut you hear about on the news, right? So, you know, I come from an Orthodox Jewish background, and so this really resonates with me. So first of all, how does this play out in your life? And I think also, maybe more importantly, what role does faith, the, does the church, and does the spirituality play in sort of the history of black political culture in America?
2: yeah that's um that's a dense question, but we'll we'll go from
1: here.
2: <laughs> like I said, my background has always been in the faith. So um, studying the scriptures, the ancient texts is something that my father raised me to do, and my stepmother. And um, they taught me a lot about the prophets. They taught me a lot about the gifts of the spirit, how to tap into the spirit realm so that we know what God is thinking and how to convey his. So this is just kind of all of that I know. And to be honest, I knew when I was about 17 years old, one of God's prophets, his spokesperson said, one day you're going to reach the heights of Washington, D.C. And the way that people are known in Hollywood, in terms of the celebrity status, that's how you're going to be known in Washington, D.C. And I'm 17. like all I to go to college. I don't <laughs> want to about it. So it's like those kind of messages came to me very early on between the, uh, the years of 11 and 17, kind of like how Joseph got his message when he was 17. It's like, what? So anyways, you you know, I got those messages when I was very young and then I just started to see how God's hand was working through every single situation, whether bad or good. And so as time went on, and like I said, in 2016, that's really where I began to feel this burning desire to say something like Jeremiah talks about how it was like fire shut up in his bone. He just could not keep quiet, even though he wanted to. And I felt that same thing, like there's something burning in me where I just have to at least release this message that, you know, there are some things that we are seeing happening in our social, political and even our economic spaces. And there is a solution like God is present to give us a solution here. All we have to do is just search. Basic spiritual principles and spiritual laws apply them to our life and we can prosper. And so, as I began to share that, then people started to latch on. And because I was, you know, technically on the Republican side, there's only like 10% of Black. Republicans out here so it's like oh my gosh other black person oh my god you know they get they get so excited <laughs> so I'm like well okay yes I'm on the right but understand that I'm not your typical black Republican who's going to say a lot of negative stuff about black people just so you can give me a hand clap like I'm I'm really gonna hit you with what's happening in our political space in our cultural space. And then I'm going to show you how we can build these bridges. And so when I really first started talking in 2016, I also started to talk about how during the early 1900s, we had this surge of American revivals. And I mean, like not just going to church and everybody's shouting and everybody goes home and folks forget God, you know, Monday through Saturday. I'm talking about real revivals where people's lives were completely changed, where the crime rates in L.A. or in San Francisco or in these other parts of the country were completely completely gone, diminished. The police didn't know, they didn't have no jobs, no nothing to do because revival was taking place in the hearts and minds of people. But then I I said, Holy Spirit, one day I, I said, I don't understand how these revivals stopped if they were working so well. And actually, when you do the study of it, you will find that at the start of progressivism in the country, progressivism actually infiltrated the churches. And this is that idea that, you know, we have all these problems and the people who can solve it best is the government. And so you actually see this correlation between a diminish in the revivals that were taking place during the early 1900s and the rise of progressivism. And so now is the time where I'm like, okay, I get it. I see you. Let's just start talking about this empowering message. And let's get people back to our core way of behaving, like spiritual laws and principles. The ones that I teach at least are very universal. Like the law of love, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love, like this is basic. Or the law of truth and justice. Like, don't do something against your fellow American um, that's gonna violate their property or their rights or their humanity. Like, these are just basic truths. And I feel like if we can just adopt these once again, we would see this huge drop in a lot of the death, poverty, the destruction that we see happening on such a regular basis. And so, to get back to your question faith, spirituality, knowing God, like I am very clear about who I talk to and who responds back to me when I'm talking on Twitter. I don't call him by any other name. And I I feel like that would be a disrespect to just say, oh, the universe is talking to me. Well, no, his name is Holy (laughs) Spirit. Like this is who's talking to me. This is who's giving me insight. And I don't use my platform to force people into Christianity because even that is a situation that's, in my opinion, man-made religion, but I just show them like, this is who's talking, this is who's working. And then I kind of leave it to my audience to say, okay, I'm kind of curious, like, who's this God that Felicia talks to? And then I just kind of let it go from there. But just given the platform that I have, I know how important faith is to Black Americans. And even if you do Pew Research, They will tell you that Black Americans are predominantly conservative. We are among the most religious group in this country in terms of our numbers, especially if you compare it to the percentage of white Americans. We are much more religious. And it's because our faith had to carry us through immense hell. I mean, you're talking about a government that made us slaves, that put us through 100 plus years of Jim Crow something else had to sustain these people to tell them okay you can make it you can grow continue to have children you can dot 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 if you actually study black history a lot of their stories and the source of their faith also come from the jewish stories so a lot of them in their churches they would talk about how, how these folks were like you know pressed by the egyptians and Here we have Pharaoh taking the boys and killing. Like these stories meant so much and related so much to the black slave that they started to preach about it and they brought those messages forth and it inspired them to fight against an actual system. (laughs) You, You have to become almost superhuman, I guess you could say, but you do have to tap into a greater power when you're taking on a system that is literally trying to break and destroy an entire people group. And so getting back to say, you know, it's just the faith has to be there. I mean, there's no other way that we could manage to still be alive in this country to still thrive, even though we're, like I said, experiencing a lot of hardships in different cities. But still, it's the faith that has been the bedrock of our communities forever, for centuries. And so we'll never let that go. You'll never see us abandoning those core values. And so, yeah, that was a very long, long answer. No,
1: that was that was exactly what I was looking for, because I I, I'll tell you one of the things that so intrigued me and excited me when I discovered kind of your community and your movement was. Precisely what you're saying just now—it felt so familiar to me as someone who comes from a community, not not the Jewish community, kind of undifferentiated. But you know, as you'd be familiar with, like talking about Jews in America is like talking about—I mean, I don't know—it's—it's it's like there, we're, there's so many differences between different communities. It's almost useless to talk about Jews writ large. They're different communities and subcommunities. So you know, I come from a kind of a subcommunity that also kind of takes its faith really, really seriously. And tries to bring it into its activity in the political realm. And what I saw you doing is actually not just talking about it. You're like moving and shaking and actually (laughs) like winning elections, like actual real elections, which is crazy. So I want to pick up on a couple of things. Let's start here. I want to get to the work that you do in actually winning real-life politics-shifting elections. Before we get there, I want to get back to a point that you made earlier where you kind of alluded to building empires. One thing that I have seen in your work and the work of people in in that circle is references to black Wall Streets. And this was kind of something that, you know, I learned about when I was a kid, but, you know, you, you don't really process it. I remember when Watchmen came out, on uh, HBO, so they had that scene with where they recreated the Tulsa Massacre, and that kind of brought that piece of history to the public eye, but it did it in a way that kind of ends up stereotypically getting associated with the left or with progressive voices, which is fine, but I'd never heard somebody who identifies with a conservative political philosophy, conscious black conservative political philosophy, really talk about this history and stress its importance because kind of the stereotype as you said earlier, of African American thinkers on the right is sort of like, well, you know, we don't really need to talk about our history. It's not important. Or you kind of talk badly about your community. Another thing that as a member of a community that often gets vilified for things, I also really related to that complaint. So how do you think about the history of various black Wall Streets, which people may not even be aware of? So can you talk about that history a little bit? And how do you think about bringing that focus on entrepreneurship and wealth creation into the present?
2: Yeah, definitely. So Black Wall Streets, a lot of times when you hear it coming from media or some of the Black pundits or the news outlets, they're always going to take a progressive perspective on that particular event. Whereas when I'm talking about Black Wall Street and even when Sonny Johnson, who is like my firebrand Kindred. I just absolutely love her.
1: Also a great follow on Twitter.
2: Yes. Whenever we talk about Black Wall Street, we're talking about the period immediately following the end of slavery. So there is a, in history books, it's called the Reconstruction Period. And technically it was about a a decades long period where Black Americans were being fully immersed into the American society. They were running for office. They were winning. They were just becoming a part of the American society, American culture. But after about 10 years, the government being progressive as it is and being racist as it is, and as it was, excuse me, they instituted what we now know to be the next 100 years of Jim Crow. However, during that period of time, and this really goes back to the concept of supply and demand, because Black Americans could not engage in commerce with white Americans, They just decided to go find their areas and build, you know, so they had their own homes. They had their own communities, their own churches, their own schools, business, laundry, uh, movie, like they just started to build again because it's just a basic supply and demand situation. And so when folks talk about Tulsa, what they see is this story about this wonderful growing Black community who was suddenly destroyed by white males and getting the local government to participate in this particular destruction. That's why progressives actually love that story, because it's tied to white people, right? They don't talk about the policies that progressives have instituted against other Black Wall Streets or Black communities that may not have been ransacked physically by white males. They won't talk about any of the policies that have choked black wealth. So I bring those stories into modern time. And I say there's actually this new type of black wall street that's happening in our country where it's not us being physically or geographically concentrated, it's more so of a type of concentration that's happening in the virtual space. So just to back up a little bit, the virtual market has grown very vastly to where we can now build wealth just using our smartphones, just using podcasts, blogging, setting up virtual ministries. Like We have developed this new system over the last 15 years, I would say, where we can create these new careers And still be at home, still, you know, take care of our family. Like this is such a a wonderful opportunity for us to tap into. And the way that we've been able to fellowship or communicate with others is that we use maybe social media or any other kind of virtual outlet. So if you actually go to Twitter, there are different communities like um, hashtag Black Wealth Twitter or hashtag Black Real Estate Twitter. These are technically Black Wall Street's but in the virtual space. And so everyone who is Black and everyone who's thriving in the real estate market, they congregate there. Then they help each other. They share their resources. They share their insight. And so then they begin to grow. And then those who are part of the tech industry, they're doing the same thing. In our space over here, it's more so about the creative and the content creation and politics and whatnot. So we start, we're we starting to see this rise in what I call the new Black Wall Street. and. The thing that is trying to threaten it, just like it did over the last 100 years, is progressivism. And I don't care today if it's progressive coming from a woman who looks just like me, or from a Black man, or from a Hispanic, or what have you. It doesn't matter because progressives don't have any problem picking agents to be a representative. So it's not technically a Black, white... Or white people are coming in trying to destroy what black people are building this time. No, it's progressivism. It's the government that's doing this kind of work.
1: How does that? How does that shake out? By the way, like how? Do, how do you? How does that manifest?
2: Um, what do you mean?
1: Meaning like what what kind of threats, because I find like hashtag black real estate, black wealth, I find those spaces on Twitter so interesting and inspiring. And you could honestly replace every single thing you've just said, just replace the word black with Jewish, and it would describe a lot of Jewish history. Mm -hmm. When you say that progressivism threatens it, how does that manifest in the current space?
2: Yeah. So the way it manifests is very simple, through increased taxation and increased regulations against wealth. I'll give a couple of examples. First off, there's the cryptocurrency industry that's now just massive. Well, what is the government trying to do now? Oh, we got to regulate all of this. Oh no, we can't have these folks making all this money and we're not getting any portion of it. So it's like every time black people are building and mind you, like and I don't know very much about cryptocurrency. I just follow um, enough people who talk about it. But it's like black men are actually at the forefront of teaching about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and whatnot.
1: There was just an article about this in Forbes the other the other day about Black leadership in the crypto economy. It's a major thing. Yes,
2: yeah, so it's very much so. This is like something that Black men and probably white men, I haven't followed any white guys who are talking about it, but you just see Black men at the forefront of this really emerging, growing economy. And what's the first thing the government decides to do? Let's go regulate this. Let's go take from them. Let's figure out ways to mess up what it is that they're building. It's the same type of thing that's happening with everything. So I'll bring it to our space, how we teach folks to become content creators like bloggers and authors and whatnot. The more money these individuals make, the higher they're going to have to pay in taxes. And so again, it it, kind of suppresses this desire. Like if I keep increasing in wealth, then all I'm going to do is continue feeding this government, which by the way, progressives keep telling us, is oppressing Black people. So I've coined this new question on Twitter. I'm like, okay, so you guys keep telling us that the 1% owes so much to the government. Well, exactly how much does Black wealth owe white supremacy government? Right. No one can answer my question because people don't think in those terms. They don't think about Black people building wealth. And I keep telling them, no, the virtual market has really changed the game for us. So why do you want us to vote for policies that are going to steal our wealth when Black people, whenever we get wealth, we feel a sense of community. We instantly feel like, okay, how can I empower my parents or how can I empower my sister to help build? Like we're always thinking community based. So we don't need the government to do anything for us except get its hands off of our wallet. So to answer your question, the way progressives are infiltrating and basically destroying what we're building. Again, it's not something physical. Nobody's coming in to ransack or to burn except for Antifa, which I guess that's a different topic, but it's fully the regulations. It's the increased taxation. And then it's the idea that the government, the Democrats, have this habit of selling progressivism as some kind of charitable initiative that wealthy Black people should give into. And I'm like, well, is the government our oppressor and the savior? How are you guys managing to accept these messages that are clearly conflicting? So, you know, just one of the ways that we do that, I try to bring in the topic of Black wealth and even black wall street is just to show the correlation because a lot of times black folks you'll, you'll hear it again from black progressives who are in media they're trying to recreate the physical black wall streets that we used to read about in history and i'm like no like there's something new happening flow with the new instead of trying to recreate the literal past and thinking that you know you're going to experience the same kind of things that folks experienced 100 years ago it's like no so it kind of reminds me of when, you know, God talks about the new heaven, the new earth, the new temple, da, 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 it's like, go with him, go with the new, you know what I mean? So <laughs> what trying to do here is just to bring these stories and to show how it's really about the principles. They're not just helping us survive day to day, but they're causing us to thrive. And if I can get Black Americans to start seeing from this perspective, and then to also see how white conservatives who have the same mindset, not really being focused on, you know, black, white here and there, but going back and talking about, you know, we're of like precious faith. We're like-mindedness. Come here and build that alliance and then see what kind of powerful results can come as a result of working together.
1: I love that. And I actually think that's another place where your voice in particular has just been so Fascinating to me and stereotype breaking for me just from a political spectrum stereotype perspective, because your focus is on wealth creation, winning elections, delivering results. And I think there's like a conventional wisdom that sort of a black politician who's conservative or if you want to win in a right of center space as a black politician, you need to kind of talk down to your community or speak ill of your community. And you are just as often lambasting, you know, that typology of politician as you are lambasting the left. And that to me also is so interesting as someone who's, you know, very proud of the community that I come from. So how do you think about that dynamic that has existed until now in terms of black politicians that fit on the right? And how do you work to change that? And what have been like some success stories that you found?
2: Um, So at this point, uh, I think because the platform has really reached mainstream and I want to thank Fox and for all those um, individuals, the producers who brought me on the show so far, I've proven to Black Republicans and Black conservatives that the work can be done authentically. We don't have to degrade. We can do things God's way and get his results and we can succeed. I remember in 2016 to 2018, I became so frustrated with some of the conservatives and the black conservatives in particular. I yelled at them through Facebook and said, I'm going to prove to you that when we do things God's way, we're going to get his results. And then I remember going back to my prayer chambers and saying, "Um, Holy spirit, I need you to come through on what I just said. (laughs) (laughs) I just put your name out there, but I, I wanted to prove that this could be done. And at this point, Because, you know, so much has happened, the message has gone forth and people are seeing the results. It's kind of like when the scriptures say signs and wonders followed the preaching and the teaching of the word. That's actually what people are seeing. So it's not just me yelling in the ether. People are seeing the actual results. So we've had a few success stories, for example, out in Albany, Georgia, which is about 75% Black. It's also very heavily Democrat, very heavily progressive. We put our movement back behind a Black conservative candidate who loves the people. I made sure of that. And he won local race. And so I was like, do you see what I'm saying here? If we do it right, if we do things a great way, if we start bringing this empowering message and registering new voters, people are going to vote for conservative candidates. And so that was our first local victory. And ever since then, we've had different candidates who have reached out to us looking for help and support. And because there's so much on my plate at this time, I've made partnerships with Sonny Johnson, who provides the um, actual consultation now to candidates who would be serious. And basically anybody that she approves, the movement will automatically be um, back up. So we have that going. Other success stories happened in 2020 when our movement basically got connections to the Trump administration. And even though he didn't win, he would have won if he had listened to what Sonny Johnson and myself were sharing with him. But even though he didn't win, everything that I had shared with uh, their team, with Twitter and whatnot, came to pass. So the credibility is there, the authenticity is present. And now it's like, okay, well, what is Felicia talking about right now? You know, let's, let's actually pay attention. And so um, as a result of that, different organizations, different folks who are even affiliated with the Republican Party and who are very upset about the lack of outreach with Black voters, they're reaching out to the movement. They're reaching out to our people. And this is good stuff. This is good news. And so now on our back end, we're just trying to make sure that our system is functioning very well because we have, even though we're in an election year this year, It's just a midterm election and really I'm using this opportunity to just get word out about the movement and our empowering message. But when 2024 comes around, that's going to be an exceptionally huge year for the movement because if these folks give me the ticket that I've been demanding on Twitter, it's going to be life-changing. So just to get back, these are just a few success stories. It's just the fact that we've been able to infiltrate the mainstream media audience and now people are paying attention to our insight, our consultation, our messaging, and they're starting to say, OK, I get it. Like, I understand now, you know, the the alliance has to happen. Otherwise, we're going to see progressivism continue to metastasize. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited at the same time. I'm like, oh, God, how busy
1: your life's going to get very busy. Yeah. So just last two questions. One, what's the case for reparations?
2: Ooh, so I actually am in favor of it, but in the way that I have proposed it to conservatives. So when I talk about reparations, oftentimes, and this happens all the time, automatically to white conservatives, they instantly think that we are asking them to pay for something that they did not do. That is the talking point. And and mind you, their pundits gave them that lame messaging like, oh, no, it's immoral. It's evil. You know, it's wrong if you have to pay for it. And I'm saying, no, we're talking about a government at the local, state, and federal level that use the weight of its power to inflict, to steal from, to rape, to kill an entire people group based upon race. And I said, there are businesses who profited from this type of behavior and they have had connections with the government to help facilitate this kind of racist behavior. And so my argument is that these corporations and the government, has a responsibility to pay back the descendants of those who were directly harmed. So I don't, in particular, I don't talk about reparations specifically for my family because my family is back in California. We don't really have the same kind of dynamics that someone, a Black family in Georgia or Alabama might have. So if, let's say, reparations became an actual policy, which either Democrats or man, if Republicans did it, they would be purified. They would always win the black vote, but we'll keep it moving. (laughs) I mean, I don't imagine the Killings family being a participant of it because, you know, my grandparents migrated during that time period. So it it would be a little confusing, but my point is that not every single black family is going to receive it. It's specifically those who were disenfranchised or murdered or what have you. And so there's actually a story that I shared um, probably a couple of weeks ago where the parents in I want to say Sandy Cook, uh, it was that Sandy Cook's shooting they sued the government for damages done. I said, that is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about reparations from the perspective of a legal matter. Now, progressives aren't going to talk about it from that perspective because they need to keep black folks hyped about nothingness. Like our trauma helps fuel their political agenda. And so I'm telling black folks, no, you need to think legally. You need to be legal minded. I said, here, take a cue from your white cousins because they know how to finesse the system. They know how to use a legal system to get restitution for the government doing something wrong to their families. And so that's how I present it. Um, I do have an, what I call the ADOS Bro Initiative, which is this kind of business plan or policy that the government could institute where basically Black Americans who are building businesses, but they need help with access to capital, that's something that they could create. It would be like guaranteed loans, just like how every American is guaranteed a student loan, which is not actually working for us. But there could be this kind of initiative where after a person bootstraps a business and they've proven they can um, you know, succeed at a certain level, but they want to expand, then at least they can have access to guaranteed loans or you know, some kind of grant that would keep their business moving forward. And it would be available to to actual descendants of American slaves. So um, those are my ideas about it. Again, it's more so from this legal perspective. The government is going to have to be held accountable for what it did to Black Americans. And I don't know what that accountability is going to look like entirely. I just know that it would be wise to stop trying to push it off to the side. But, you know, Democrats are not in any better with this topic because they will pretend like, you know, they have to go through all these hoops. Oh, we have to have a hearing. We have to have this we have to have that but then you black folks are looking at the biden administration talking about issuing checks to illegal immigrants like these kind of messages are just they're asinine and black americans need to do more putting their foot on the democrats neck so that's my thoughts about reparations it is something but it has to be done from a legal standpoint which unfortunately black americans have not been given that message
1: So, I support reparations for slavery and Jim Crow by the U.S. government. And I usually find people are surprised by that because, you know, I'm, I suppose, what you'd call fairly conservative, not particularly involved in politics, but fairly kind of temperamentally conservative. So, it's not something you'd associate with my like political profile, I guess. But I actually think the argument's pretty straightforward. The objection you usually hear, which you outlined, is, well, I didn't do anything to contribute to slavery or Jim Crow. So, why am I paying? And I think doing it through the government is not just a helpful thing to do from a tactical perspective. It also just makes philosophical sense. And I think almost like theological sense in a way, just to kind of put it in my own context. So I feel a real stake in... Abraham Lincoln, sort of like as an answer, like a political ancestor of mine, or I take Frederick Douglass very seriously as a political, I take, you know, John Adams very seriously as a political predecessor of mine. Now, when Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States, my ancestors were like in the backwaters of Poland, you know, had nothing to do with America, had no plans to come to America, weren't interested in it. Like they were doing their own thing. And I'm very proud of them as well. I feel connected with them as well. But I think people see it as natural that I should be able to claim. I actually do have a moral and political right to claim Abraham Lincoln's, you know, Let's say moral triumphs is my own or pick a politician, right? Like pick any politician that you like. I think people say just because you immigrated to this country after that person was alive doesn't mean you're not connected with them. The logic of the American Republic and of governments in general, but particularly the American government, is that it's the representative of the people at large. And we all get to claim its triumphs and its merits, notwithstanding when we got here. But if that's the case, if if the logic of American history and government allows us to claim its triumphs and merits as our own, we also need to take responsibility for its sins and demerits as well. You don't get to claim Abraham Lincoln as your own, but leave, you know, James Buchanan by the side, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you're, you're responsible for both of those guys. And I think that's, that's why having it done through the government is something that makes sense, right? And I think it's a case that should specifically appeal to uh, maybe people of faith with kind of maybe more conservative instincts like myself, right? Does that make sense?
2: hmm yeah, definitely. And again, I, I try to stress to conservatives repeatedly, and mind you, I'm battling with conservatives who have had their own indoctrination for decades when it comes to this topic. So I'm having to teach them. Like, this is almost as if the police came into your home, shot your husband dead, And your husband was the sole provider for you and your family. And then they just said, you know what? There's nothing else that we're going to do for you. Sorry, he's dead.
1: No, and there there are people alive today who lived under Jim Crow. It's not like this is ancient history. Like there there are living survivors of Jim Crow.
2: Exactly. And so I'm like, no, there is a legal precedent here for there's a legal case. And I argue that black Americans should um, conduct or have class action lawsuits against the government. So, again, it's it's a difficult t- terrain to traverse only because Black Americans have been told by Democrats that it can't happen or it has to happen in this very slow methodical way whereas folks are using the legal system and they're getting financial restitution within like 2 to 10 years, I guess you could say. So
1: it's kind of like take control of the process.
2: Yeah. Take control of the process. The system is here. You just have to know how to work it and how to get in its face. But oftentimes Black Americans, unfortunately, don't know how to press the government the same way I would press the government on this side. So it just takes some learning and encouragement. But for the most part, what I'm trying to do is show them like, look, okay, you see me yelling at conservatives on this side. Why don't you come and get some access over here? What is it that you need? What is it that you want? I'm loud enough to try and push this thing over here, but we can get done.
1: So my last question for you is, as someone who takes Black identity and history and experience and literacy very seriously, in a way that appeals to me as someone who takes Jewish experience, literacy and history very seriously, if you had to start with, Reading something, you know, Frederick Douglass's autobiography or one of the autobiographies, like if you had to start with something, what's a text, a podcast, uh, a show like what's something, a resource that you would say, hey, if you want to understand the richness of black culture, if you want to understand the history, you want to understand kind of our origin stories, as it were, what's something you would point people to?
2: Oh, man, that's hard. Just pick one. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably start, folks, at um, "Up from Slavery" by Booker T. Washington, and uh, just go from that perspective because him and Frederick Douglass—they're kind of like uh, the godfathers of black conservatism, I guess you could say. Um, because with Booker T. Washington, it was very much so like, okay, we're free now. I see these some of these slaves over here—they're being real lazy. Then I see it's like this whole transformation that he went through to become the black icon that he is among conscious black conservatives. Like, eh. and I say that because even, you know, the regular black conservatives that we see in mainstream media, they don't even highlight him because again, they're telling us that black history doesn't really matter. So I would tell folks start there and pretty much it's going to be a rabbit hole after that. You know, you'll, you'll see footnotes, you'll see this reference and that reference, but yeah, go and start there. If they want something more modern, to just give them a very overall view of Black history. I recommend my book that I wrote called The 1520 Rise, which just kind of gives a very general elementary um, breakdown of Black history. If you want something more dense, then I would say purchase my other book, Progressivism is Not Charity, because that book, I mean, I'm like, oh my gosh, can't believe I wrote that one. It's, just, it's <laughs> so much content there when you're, because I was trying to analyze the different thoughts during, you know, the post-slavery phase and then the civil rights phase. And you always see two different main ideologies going toe-to-toe, head-to-head. And folks will start to really understand like, okay, I get why Felicia thinks the way that she does. I get why Sunny thinks the way she does. Or I see why, you know, they're angry at the Black Republicans here because it's like our Black history is just oozing with conservatism. There's no reason why we should not be focused on this in terms of making an appeal to uh, Black voters today. So that's what I would say.
1: I love it. I want to leave you with an easy one, right? Okay. What do you want from candidates on issues relating to the criminal justice system, the impact of policing on Black communities? What do you look for in that case?
2: Yeah, I'm looking for candidates who have um, a really great idea in terms of how to be proactive and not just reactive. So the criminal justice system has its own, if folks want to call it white supremacy, government, whatever. Once you're in it, it's nearly impossible to get out of it. And there's so many negative things that happen as a result of Um, being involved or connected to that system. So I would rather see candidates who are supporting um, initiatives like with King Randall and his organization, The X for Boys.
1: He's amazing.
2: Yeah, and how he's working with these young men before they get involved with the worst of the worst situations. So I want to see candidates who come and put their support back of him. Um, I want to see them selling uh, policies that will protect what he's trying to create I need to see candidates who are going to put in that kind of work. So even if a candidate doesn't have his or her own organization that they started or whatever, I need to know that they're going to be there to sell conservative politics to black conservatives like King Randall. That's my biggest thing and that's why I've been pushing for Brian Kemp out here to have a meeting with him. I've been pushing for Herschel Walker and then all of these other Republicans because I'm like if you're not going to at least sell conservatism to him To King Randall, who's like out here doing God's work, then I'm not even going to tolerate you at that point. So that's what I'm looking for when it comes to uh, criminal justice system. I want them to be more proactive as opposed to reactionary.
1: And what do you say when you hear that talking point that you often hear from Republicans or conservatives that, oh, really? It's a it's a whole media narrative. Really, the police system, the criminal justice system, doesn't impact the black community disproportionately. One of the cool things that I've seen from you and from your movement is that it actually confronts that issue head on. It doesn't like brush that under the rug.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't care if it's just one police officer killing one American citizen illegally. I'm going to be upset about the state using its power to hurt a Black, I mean, it could be Black, it could be White, I'm just going to be, always be bothered with the government infringing on the rights of American citizens. And so what I tell conservatives is, listen, uh, if you negate, if you ignore the situation that's happening over here in Black America, it's going to happen to you. And white conservatives got a dose of it over the last two, three years with just the mask mandates. I mean, they're going out of their mind over the government overstepping itself over a mask. And I'm like, well, welcome to Black people's world where we have something for a hundred plus years and it's far worse. So I'm like, the law of sowing and reaping is always going to be in effect. It's probably best for us to start sowing something much better so that we can reap better results. And it's working. Like I said, it goes back to us understanding spiritual laws, how they can be injected in the social, political, and economic spaces, and then learning how to apply them effectively so that we get better results for the next 100 plus years.
1: Unbelievable, Felicia, you're such a powerhouse. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: How does a minority community that has long suffered state-sanctioned depression take control of its own destiny, build wealth, invest in education about its past, And promote pride in its distinctive culture. I mean, that's a question that applies equally to the historical Jewish experience and the experience of the black community in America. I think it's really amazing to see people, whatever their ultimate political affiliations, take seriously the principles of faith, self-dignity, cultural pride, and a commitment to wealth creation in pursuit of communal virtue and health. I mean, what an inspiring thing. What important principles to live by. Just so amazing to have people like Felicia on. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. See you next time.
0: Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about SoulShop, Shop, follow SoulShop Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at SoulShop underscore studios. And check out SoulShopstudios.com.